for leading us in our, in our prayers this morning. Uh, we're going to hear from God's Word now. Uh, Kelly's going to uh, come and, uh, and read for us. So since the beginning of July, we've been uh, going through uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, and uh, we're going to explore the next bit of that as well. So it'd be really helpful and be great if you could have a, a Bible open in front of you. So if to turn, it, turn it on if you've got it on your phone, or, or grab one from the seats around you. I think if I'm right, it's on page in the church Bibles, it's 1180, children of God. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God, through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are of Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees, until the set time sorry until the time set by his father so also when we were under age we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world but when the set time had fully come god sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much for reading that for us, Kelly. Um, so our children's groups uh, leaders are, are taking a, a well-earned break over the summer, but we, if any of the uh, young people here, there are some, there's some art and stuff at the, uh, at the back, so if anyone would like to do that at the back uh, whilst we're uh, reflecting on this passage, then, 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 then please do. But uh, let me pray for us as we reflect on this passage together. Holy Spirit, you caused this passage to be written in the first place. You inspired the Apostle Paul with these words. And so we pray that you would uh, open our ears to them this morning, that we would understand what it is that you want us to hear through them. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help me to speak the words faithfully and truly, 
reflecting all that you intend to say to us this morning. So come, Holy Spirit. Come and open each and every ear to what you want us to hear from you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Who am I? You may not have noticed it, but concern for identity is everywhere. In hundreds of ways, every week, we're told that who you are is who you are inside. Nothing outside matters. Your body doesn't matter. What your parents or friends say doesn't matter. What religion or tradition says doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what you find when you look inside yourself. And what's more, because our identity is just an inner thing, only you can know who you are. No one else can tell you who you are. You have to discover it and assert it for yourself. Is it any wonder that there's a mental health crisis among young people today when they're constantly told that it's up to them to work out who they are and what their place is in the universe? The name that's given to this philosophy that's so prevalent in modern Western world is expressive individualism. And it's uh, typified by the slogans, be true to yourself. You be you, follow your heart, live your truth, find yourself. Anyone heard those recently? Uh, bear with me for the next bit, it's, uh, I think it's valuable. The philosopher uh, Charles Taylor, author of the book on modern Western secular, secularism, describes it like this. He says, Individu expressive individualism is the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century. That's just saying where it comes from. Here's the important bit. That each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. In other words, expressive individualism says the meaning of your life is to find out your deepest self and then express that to the world, forging an identity for yourself that isn't constrained by anyone or anything else, not by your family, not by your friends, not by your religion, anything. Except, here's the great irony. By expressing yourself in that way, you're conforming to that cultural narrative. We'll gloss over that for now. Expressive individualism is the plot line for many a Disney film, and the classic is probably Frozen. We're sold the let it go narrative. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. The song Let It Go is the expressive individualist anthem. It says what it's all about. 
Who am I? Well, it says, I am whoever I identify myself to be. To live my best life, I've got to work out who I am deep down and then assert that as confidently as I can to everyone else. And it's up to me to define the terms of my own existence. It's my truth that matters. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free to have anyone else tell me who I am, that would be oppressive. I'm free, Elsa sings defiantly. Seldom, I think, does anyone recognize that what happens to Elsa is that she ends up in an ice palace of her own making, whilst everyone back in Arendelle freezes to death. That's the fruit of the expressive individualism. But its roots go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Did God really say, you can be like God? That is, don't take God's word for it. You decide what's right and wrong for yourself. Well, maybe I'm in a minority of one, but I think we need a better story than that. I think we need a better way of knowing who we are than searching the deep, tangled, contradictory mess of my own inner thoughts and emotions. Expressive individualism leads us into greater and greater isolation. If each of us must rely only on ourselves to define who we are, then there's very little room for real interdependence. If each of us must define our own version of truth, then there's very little common ground on which we can stand together, is there? What we need is an identity that's conferred on us from outside ourselves that can truly unify. And that, Paul says, is exactly what the gospel does. The gospel not only tells us who we are, but also creates a meaningful community of people who stand out in a world of loneliness. So as we look at this passage, we're going to see that the gospel tells us three things about our identity as Christians. First, we're no longer slaves, but sons. And just in case any of you are wondering, I've said sons for a reason, and we'll come to it. Second, we're part of the family of faith. And third, we're both redeemed and adopted. And then this passage also tells us that we can know who we are as Christians in two ways. Through the objective work of the Son and through the subjective work of the Spirit. So that's where we're going. First, we're no longer slaves but sons. Who are we as Christians? Listen to these words that Kelly's just read for us from uh, chapter 4, verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Now we're going to explore what Paul means here 
But for a moment, can I just encourage us just to stop, to pause, and to marvel at the reality behind those words. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you believe in Jesus and you've been baptized into him by faith, your identity is God's child. That's who you are. Who are you? In Christ, you are the son or the daughter of the Most High God, the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord of all, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who holds galaxies in his hands. The God who told Moses to call him I am who I am tells you, call me daddy. Isn't that amazing? You don't seem amazed. You are God's child. That is the most true thing about you if you're a Christian here this morning. I remember as a, as a kid, um, there being this stupid competitiveness amongst the boys. And it, in my experience, it was the boys. I don't know, maybe some of you girls can tell me whether it was true. But especially on the playground. And we kind of used to have this thing. It's like, my dad's bigger than your dad. Yeah, well, my dad's richer than your dad. Yeah, well, my dad's bigger and stronger than both of your dads and beat them up tomorrow. Is that just my childhood? No? Well, Christians have the ultimate comeback. Uh-huh. Yeah. My God's dad, uh, my dad's God. Yeah. Can you imagine how tall you would walk if you really believed that deep down in your heart? But what makes this even more amazing is that Paul says, we were slaves. That's what Paul says. You are no longer a slave. So that's what we used to be. But note this. If you're a Christian, that's no longer who you are. If you're a Christian, what defines you now is not your sin, but your Savior. So let's look at first at who Paul says we were before throwing our lot in with Jesus. We were slaves, Paul says. In uh, verse 23 of chapter 3, Paul writes this. He says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. In, in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. What's Paul talking about? Well, Paul is likening the law that God gave the people of Israel at Mount Sinai 
to a legal guardian. Now, the, the New Testament scholar Tom Wright translates that word as a babysitter, i.e. someone whose job it is to look after the children day by day, keeping them out of trouble, setting them on the right path on the parents' behalf until they come to a time uh, of accountability, of responsibility. And so Paul's basic point here is that all of us are either under law or in Christ. All of us are either living in the Old Testament or the New Testament. All of us are either working from a conviction that our biography, that is our, who we are and what we do, is the basis for our belovedness, or that the value and verdict of God on our lives is based on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And God gave the law in order to lead us to faith. And therefore, faith in Jesus is what it looks like to be a fully mature, grown-up adult Christian. That's what it means to be a grown-up in God's family, is to believe in Jesus. The law wasn't meant to be permanent. It was meant to keep us on the straight and narrow path that leads to its fulfillment in Jesus. The role of the law was to show us that we can't save ourselves, but we need a savior to make us sons who obey, not out of fear, but out of love for their father. So if that's who we were, who are we now? Paul gives us the answer in uh, verse 26 of chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Sinclair Ferguson writes, The notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. This is the heart of the Christian life. You are all children of God, Paul says. And notice this. He says, you are all children of God. Already. Not, it's not something you have to work towards. It's not a promotion you are all children of God. Present tense. So how do we move from being slaves to sons? Well, again, the answer is found there. Either side of those wonderful words in verse 26. In Christ Jesus, through faith. If we want to understand who a Christian is, then we have to understand the meaning of that phrase, in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Paul uses three images in the last four verses of Galatians 3. First, he says in verse 27 that we were baptized into Christ. Second, a little later in the same verse, he says that we have clothed ourselves with Christ. Third, he says in verse 29 that we belong to Christ. Now, all three of those are different ways of saying the same thing. Namely, that what it means to be in Christ Jesus so first, it means being plunged into Jesus, being totally identified with him, so that what's true of him becomes true of you. 
Second, it means wearing Jesus as the only basis of your acceptance with God. You know, uh, you see a, a star on the, on the red carpet. Who are you wearing today? I'm wearing Jesus. And third, it means throwing in our lot with him. Uniting ourselves to him. So in other words, we become children of God. Not by anything that's in us, but only in Christ. And that only by faith. You know, sometimes people have a, a magical or superstitious view of baptism that the act itself unites a person to Christ. Well, that's simply not what Paul teaches here. It's not the splashing of water on someone that makes them a child of God. It's faith. John Stott writes, uh, Faith secures the union. Baptism signifies it outwardly and visibly. Thus in Christ, by faith inwardly, verse 26, and baptism outwardly, verse 27, we are all sons of God. And what's more, it's really important for us to notice as well that our identity of as children of God isn't a given. Although there is a, a sense in which all humans are God's children because he made us, the kind of sonship that Paul's talking about here comes only through faith in the Son, Jesus Christ. And unless we put our trust in the Son, Jesus Christ, we're not part of that family. If we want to experience what it is to be a child of God, Paul says we must be in Christ Jesus through faith. A final word on this before we move on, because I said that we'd mention it, and I will. Paul says you are all sons of God. I know in the NIV it says children. The word in the Greek is sons. Uh, and the NIV makes it gender neutral uh, by translating it children of God. That's not really what the original Greek says. And before we just dismiss this as a, as a relic of a bygone patriarchal culture that we want to toss in the bin, it's worth us actually just sitting with the significance of the original because it's actually a lot more explosive in the original. In most ancient cultures... Daughters couldn't inherit property. Only sons, either natural sons or adopted sons, could be a legal heir. But do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying, you all, men and women, are sons of God. You're all legal heirs of God. God doesn't just treat us like sons. He writes us into his will. And that leads us on to the second aspect of our Christian identity that we see in this passage. And that's this. No Christian is an only child. The eminent uh, 17th century poet John Donne uh, put it famously when he said, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Christianity is not a solo sport. 
Listen again to Paul's words in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Through faith in Christ, we not only belong to God as sons, but to one another as brothers and sisters. And just as we don't get to pick our biological family members, so you also don't get to pick the members of God's family either. God gathers his family, not you, not me. And our identity as Christians is therefore a family identity. We're not just individuals left to discover and express our own individuality. We're members of a group who learn who we are and how to express who we are as sons of God within that group, this group. Uh, Mark Sayers, uh, whose book we're going to be looking at together, writes this. He says, to be shaped by grace in a culture of self is the most countercultural act one can commit. It's to break its only taboo, to commit self-disobedience, to acknowledge that authority does not lie with us, that we ultimately have no autonomy, to admit that we are broken, that we are rebellious against God and his rule, to admit that Christ is ruler, to abandon our rule and to collapse into his arms of grace, to dig deep roots into his love. We don't just need resilience We need gospel resilience. This is something we learn together. Part of the countercultural witness of the church in our place and time is to be a community in which we learn to have our lives narrated by God as that's mediated to us through one another. We can only know who we are as individuals in relation to our corporate identity as the family of God. And there are three times in verses 26 to 28 that Paul uses the word all referring to the group. So first he says, you are all children of God. For, you, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Have you got the message? You don't have to figure out who you are alone. And when I struggle to believe and live out my identity in Christ, I need you to draw alongside me and say, Stephen, you are God's beloved son with whom he is well pleased. I need that. And I think you need that too. And that's why we exist. And what's more, notice that the family of faith that God creates is one in which the old distinctions of culture, class, and gender cease to be relevant for our status in the family, either for our standing before God or our standing before one another. As has been said many times before, and I'm sure most of you have heard it before, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
God doesn't have favorites. And since we're all saved by grace through faith, you are not more of a child of God than someone else. If you're a Jew, or if you're rich, or if you're a man, that's what Paul's saying. The gospel has radical social implications. In Christ, the barriers that usually divide come tumbling down. Right at the end of his letter, verse 15 of chapter 6, he says, uh, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. So do you see what this means? It means that what matters most about you is not your pedigree, your performance, your past, but your faith in Christ. Tim Keller writes, the gospel means I am a Christian before I am anyone or anything else. So if you're a Christian, your primary identity is child of God. Everything else, husband, wife, son, daughter, Lawyer, mechanic, nurse, everything else is secondary. And that's not to say that every other aspect of our human identity is now irrelevant, just that it's irrelevant for determining our standing before God and before one another. John Stott explains, when we say that Christ has abolished these distinctions, we mean not that they do not exist, but that they do not matter. They're still there, but they no longer create any barriers to fellowship. We recognize each other as equals. Well, it's been a a little while since I last quoted Dallas Willard. So uh, just to show that I haven't fallen out of favor, he hasn't fallen out of favor. He says this. uh, The aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with himself included in that community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. The family that God creates in Christ crosses barriers of culture and class and gender. What unites us isn't that we all look the same or speak the same or vote the same but that we have the same heavenly Father because we all believe in the same Lord. I believe that this table is the most egalitarian place in the world. There is nowhere else in the world that I know of where a president prisoner and a prostitute could gather around one table all as needy beggars. Do you know anywhere else where that would happen? Only where we feast together on the grace of God. And the third thing this passage says is true about us as children of God is that we're both redeemed and adopted. Look with me at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. But when the set time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So let's take uh, those two key words, uh, 
just to consider what they mean, why they're so important for us. So the word redeem. To redeem literally means to buy back. In Paul's day, it meant the price he would pay to release a slave from their owner. Paul says that we belong to the law. We are the law's slaves. The the law is our owner. We are obliged to keep the law, but we can't. Sin is in charge of us, keeping us from being all that we could be. If we're to be free, someone must pay the price to redeem us. And that, Paul says, is exactly what Jesus has done. He has paid the full price of our freedom with his own life. He died on the cross to pay our debt. He fulfills all the Lord's demands in us and for us, freeing us from them. We are redeemed. But that's not all. We are redeemed that we might receive adoption to sonship. Uh, the children, Christian children's author Sally Lloyd-Jones tells a story from the American Civil War uh, of a northerner who bought a young slave girl at auction. And as they left the auction house together, he turned and told her, you're free. And may she asked, free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. To go wherever I want? Yes, he said. And she looked at him intently and replied, then I will go with you. You see, redemption is only half of the good news. The gospel isn't just that we're forgiven and freed from slavery to sin, as wonderful as that is, but that we're made the children of God. We're saved from slavery. We're saved for sonship. The gospel isn't saving Private Ryan. Have you seen that film? There's that bit in the film where uh, one of the, the soldiers is gone, is, uh, is dying uh, to rescue, having gone and saved uh, Private Ryan. Uh, And he says, earn this. Earn this sacrifice. Well, we're not saved from death in order to earn the new life we've given. No, 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 no. It's not just that God wipes our slate clean, and now from now on we have to try really hard to keep our nose clean and to write some good deeds on the slate instead. That's not how it works. The way in is the way on. The Christian life is one of grace from first to last. Jesus doesn't redeem us from under the law and then leave us to our own devices again. Jesus doesn't only half save us, he saves us to the uttermost. In the the Greco-Roman world in which Paul was writing... A childless, wealthy man could take one of his servants and adopt him as his son. And at that moment, his legal status would change. He ceased to be a slave and he received all the legal and financial benefits of being a legitimate son and heir. And that's the picture that Paul paints for us. We were slaves without a relationship to God the Father. We're now sons, legitimate sons. We're heirs of 
all that he has. The gospel is a great exchange. Not only does Christ take upon himself all of our sin, but he confers on us all of his rights and privileges as God's only begotten son. Jesus doesn't just clear our overdraft. He deposits in our account his infinite riches and glory. Tim Keller explains, Paul wants to show the Galatians and us that not only did Christ remove the curse we deserved, but also he gives us the blessing he deserved. So we need to remember both halves of verse 5, that we are redeemed and adopted. If we remember our redemption but forget our adoption, then our Christian lives will be driven by anxiety and fear that if we don't perform, we're out again. But if we forget our redemption and only remember our adoption, then our Christian lives will take on the hue of spoiled, entitled brats to whom the sinfulness of our sin means nothing. We are redeemed and we are adopted. So how can we know that we are children of God? Don't worry, I'm beginning to land the plane. We know that we're redeemed from sin and adopted into God's family in two ways. Through the objective work of the Son and through the subjective work of the Spirit. And if you're wondering what on earth does that mean, I'll try and explain it. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, The Son's purpose was to secure for us the legal status of our sonship. By contrast, the Spirit's purpose is to secure the actual experience of it. So, what he's saying is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection accomplishes our change of status from slaves to sons, irrespective of what you feel, what I feel. If you like, you could say that Jesus' work on the cross hands you your adoption papers. Here you are. You are now legally a child of God. But in contrast, the work of the Spirit applies the truth of our, our new identity to our hearts, allowing us to feel embraced in a big bear hug of the Father's love. So the first way we can know that we're children of God is by looking to Jesus and meditating on his love for us, revealed in his life, death, and resurrection. So remember uh, Paul's words in uh, verses 4 and 5. God sent his son that we might receive adoption to sonship. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He said, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. So if you want to know whether you're a child of God or not, the first thing you do is look to Jesus. That's what Paul said in uh, 20, verse 26 of chapter 3. You are all children of God. How? Through faith. So if you believe in Jesus, you're a child of God. If you've put your trust in him as your Lord, as your Savior, as your supreme treasure, if you've been united to Christ, symbolized in baptism, those waters tell you who you are. You are a child of God. But there's also a second way that we can 
and must know that we are God's children. So listen again to what Paul says in verse 6. He says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. I know that I'm a child of God because the spirit of Jesus lives in me. I know that I'm a child of God because the prayer that naturally rises in my heart is the prayer of Jesus calling God by the familiar Aramaic name by which he called his father. Abba, Daddy. I know that I'm a child of God because I enjoy an unforced, authentic intimacy with God. Because my prayer life is warm and free and personal, not stiff and mechanical and formal. I know that I'm a child of God because I feel and experience His love in my life. The work of the Son is something done to us from the outside. The work of the Spirit is something done to us from the inside. It's not a case of having one or the other. We need both. We need both. To focus on the work of the Son apart from the Spirit is cold. We might know that we're God's children intellectually, but it's not really real to us. It's just words. It's not explosively alive in our inner being. But to focus on the work of the Spirit apart from the work of the Son is in danger of being full of sound and fury signifying nothing. The reality of my redemption and adoption as a son of God doesn't depend on me and my feelings. My feelings aren't the barometer. And yet they are meant to be felt. They are meant to be experienced. They are meant to be lived. Being a child of God should move you. It should wow you. It should thrill you. We need both. So this morning, I just want to leave us with a really simple question. Who are you? Who are you? Do you know who you are? Have you swallowed the expressive individualist mantra of finding yourself, following your heart? Or have you heard the Spirit of Jesus crying out within you, Abba, Father? Do you know that you've been redeemed from slavery to the law, to having to prove yourself before God and before others, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Do you know that you've been adopted because God's Holy Spirit wraps you in that warm embrace of the Father's love? Paul says in verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Do you know that? I don't mean know it here, I mean know it here. Do you know that? And if you do know it, do you know that as the most true thing about you? 
as we respond to God. So I can invite you to stand if you're able. And can I suggest that we just take a moment just to wait on, wait on God and just ask the Holy Spirit just to minister to us as, as we need. You might like to put your hands out in front of you just as a, a sign of being open to receive all that God has for you. There's nothing special about it. It's just a, a posture of openness. And we just say, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, minister to our hearts. I've got a sense that there are some people here today who have got the adoption certificate, but they have never experience that big bear hug of the Father's love that the Holy Spirit gives. And if that's you, we would love to to pray with you that the Holy Spirit fill you and well up within you, crying out, Abba, Father, Daddy. I've got a sense as well that there might be some people here today who are looking on from outside. People who want to be part of that family, but know they're not yet part of that family. And again, if that's you, we'd love to pray with you, love to pray for you. Just look to Jesus. So Holy Spirit, come minister to us in this time, in this place. Write on the hearts of your people that we are children of God. And Lord, for, for those of us who have come to know and love and trust in the Lord Jesus, write it on our hearts that we are your children. May that be the most true, the most real thing about our identity. And Lord, for anyone here who needs to know, not just in their heads, but in their hearts, that this is real, would you send your spirit now? Send your spirit to flood the hearts of those who long to feel the embrace of the Father. Come, Holy Spirit, minister to us, we pray. Amen. We're going to uh, remain standing. We're going to sing uh, our uh, next song together. If uh, if anyone would appreciate prayer, uh, we'll be in the prayer ministry. Uh,